On Young Cast AO, welcome to Afternoon of Delight, where Leah, Megan, and Amy, three American romance novelists discussing all things K-romance from a writer's lens. We fangirl over our favorite actors and actresses, talk up our trope addictions, and nerd out on K-drama deep dives. We'll throw in a few K-pop and K-skincare recs for good measure, because why not ride the Hallyu wave all the way to shore? So grab some tech bokey and listen to your new favorite unis. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hi there. So I actually have to have something I wanted to talk about based on a tweet that I saw. I'm going to have to give credit to the original person who wrote this. So her at on Twitter is at human house plant. And I guess her name is Frankie Larson. (laughs) I like that name. Yeah. Human house plant. Let me preface this by saying a lot of times on this podcast, I have kind of made my case for what I think an alpha is. And this woman really summed it up and it made me really happy. So... Her tweet is, quote, I'm an alpha, unquote. And she says, no, you're not. You're an ass that thinks talking over people makes you important. Do you even know what an alpha does? They feed and protect their pack. Where's your fanny pack full of cheesy crackers, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) And then it says, her next tweet is, if you are out with your buds and don't have ibuprofen, neosporin, and cheesy crackers with you, you are not an alpha. (laughs) So basically a mom a mom. I, I love it because it basically is your exact definition. It, it is. Uh, this is why I love it because yes, an alpha is going to take care of his pack. When it comes to like alphas in books and movies and shows, he or she is going to be, or they is going to be a leader. They're going to take care of people. They're not going to be some dickwad CEO who overworks his employees or their employees. That's just not the way that's not going to be. They provide ibuprofen and cheesy crackers. Okay. And this made me so happy. And I need to tweet this person directly because I just enjoy this so much. I just can't stop laughing about, <laughs> I can't stop picturing some of the alphas I see fanny packs on. With, with snacks and first aid. Yeah, like I've talked about how Park Sarawi in Itawan class is, is an alpha. And I've never seen a character who takes care of his people as well as Park Sarawi takes care of his people in that drama. And he absolutely would carry around a fanny pack of cheesy crackers if he knew that someone needed them. Their blood sugar ran low. He absolutely would carry a fanny pack of crackers, okay? That's an alpha. So I just had to get that off my chest because it it really made my week seeing that tweet. Captain Ree would carry a fanny pack too. He would, absolutely. 100% Captain Ree would carry that fanny pack. I just remember him putting the shoes on his, I don't remember which one it was. It's the one who was in Move to Heaven, right? The youngest one, the youngest one of his men. Oh, stop it. Oh, I love that scene. In the park when he's, yep. Oh my gosh. When he bent down and put the shoes on him. Oh God, I forgot about that just till now. Yep. That's an alpha for you. Yep. Captain Mm -hmm. Ray. So what are we talking about today? Today is our love it or leave it episode. We are talking about dramas that hook us in the first episode or that don't. And we all watched one episode of a drama that nobody else on, in the group has watched. And we're going to be talking about whether we're going to love it or leave it. So first up, what's a drama that hooked you on the first episode and why? Luckily, there are many. The most recent one for me was Lawless Lawyer. I had just come off of watching Lee Joong-gi in Flower of Evil and loving him in that. It was my first Lee Joong-gi role. And I mentioned in our Flower of Evil podcast that I needed to see him in something else immediately after because I was convinced that he wasn't acting in Flower of Evil, that he was his character and that there was no way he could prove otherwise. So then I started Lawless Lawyer, which opens with Lee Joon-gi as Bong Sang-pil, speeding down the road in his sports car, his tattooed knuckles on the steering wheel, a tailored suit on his wiry but kick-ass frame, and a police officer on a motorcycle in hot pursuit. He pulls Bong Sang-pil over, and our Lawless Lawyer strides out of the car with effortless cool. And when the cop tries to extort a bribe from Sang-pil, Sang-pil feigns innocent and instead hands him his ID and business card that says he's a lawyer telling the cop that he now has the evidence he needs to prove that this cop is taking bribes since their whole conversation and interaction was recorded with his car CCTV because, of course, CCTV to the rescue. (laughs) Well, CCTV and badass bong sang pill. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Amy. I think I remember because I I watched that before you did. And I'm like, guys, 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 the opening scene is him in a suit in his sports car with his tattooed knuckles steering wheel. Oh, my gosh. It was just such an so yeah. I mean, the whole first episode was amazing. But just that opening scene of him with his like badass car with a suit and aviators be still my heart. Oh, 
Yes. I'll watch that again. That's just that scene. I know you guys are over me talking about this drama, but I'm sorry. Okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> just gonna keep doing it. This is a good first episode, though. It truly is. Like, I knew you would take this one, which is why I didn't even go near right. it. <laughs> so I think we talked about opening scenes that really caught us. And Amy did mention the first scene in a previous podcast. And to me, this first episode was really a masterclass in setting up an intriguing conflict as well as cramming in so much characterization that I was rooting for both of leads within the first 10 minutes. I think that's what I like so much about it. Which drama are you talking about? You haven't said the drama oh. yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, What's well, I'm not a robot because what else do I talk about? I'm talking about I'm not a robot and I'm not, I'm not sorry for mentioning this again. So we've talked about the opening scene. As I said, uh, Yu Sung Ho as Kim Ming Q in all black at his military enlistment interview trying to explain to the doctors why he can't be a part of the military and they don't believe this allergy that he's talking about this human allergy so he takes off his jacket he's wearing his black tank top and he grabs an arm of one of the doctors and immediately his skin breaks out and boils while his breathing starts to grow labored and the doctors are terrified and they basically just stamp excused on his form and that's the first time you meet kim and q and meanwhile the heroine is standing in line to score a toy for a client who happens to be Kim and Q. And it goes to battle against an entire crowd, even shouting down someone trying to cut. No cutsies. So she delivers the toy that she fought for, tooth and nail, for only for Kim and Q to tell her the box is damaged. Hilarity ensues as the plot basically sets them on a collision course when she is recruited to play a pretend robot to gain funding from a billionaire who happens to be Kim and Q. The stakes are high, the humor is legendary, and it's just a first episode that sucked me in. It just sets up this great conflict. It's life or death, it's funny, and you're rooting for both the characters. I mean, Kim and Q, vulnerability of who he is, they show the heroine who is striving, make something of herself as an inventor, and you're just, you just, you're rooting for them separately and together. It's a great first episode. It really yeah. is. Yeah, I do love it. But I am going to go with a drama that neither of you have seen. And that's actually a surprise to me because I feel like this is a drama slightly just like made for Megan. <laughs> um, and that is Memories of the Alhambra. So this drama starts on the streets of Barcelona, which is, you know, it's a surprising K-drama because you're not expecting to be in Spain. And you can immediately tell that this is going to be a big budget show that's not going to scamp when it comes to production. There's late teen, early 20 geeky something kid on a payphone talking to someone and just freaking out. Then he takes off seemingly running for his life, boards a train, and then that's when shit starts to get real weird. Because the sunny day out the window turns stormy in seconds. The kid is looking out of his train car towards like the corridor of the train in this like seeming panic as some random guy is like sleeping across from him in his chair. There's a gunshot. We see blood splattering the window. Then the train reaches the station and everything's back to normal. The sun's out and the person who'd been snoozing in the train car wakes up and notices that the kid we just saw presumably shot has left his backpack behind. But whole car looks normal. There's no blood. There's no bullets. And that's when we get this narration that this was the kid's last known location, boarding the train before he disappears. Dun, dun, dun. So, you know, there's like some mysterious something afoot. Then we kind of like cue to Hyun Bin and he's coming to this hostel in Granada. And it turns out that he's the guy the kid had been calling. And he's in this suit, like looking like a snack. And he goes to this dingy hotel that's owned by a Korean family, which again, kind of feels a little random, but you know, it all comes together. Anyway, the hotel is a disaster. It's falling apart. His room is a disaster. Blah, 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 blah. There's like a cute girl who's running the show there. He's the annoyed Chaebol. That's when we kind of pivot back to the action where Hyun Bin's character sticks in some special contact lenses and goes out of the crappy hotel to hit the Spanish streets. And shit starts coming alive. So we quickly can tell that he's in some sort of virtual video game where he's battling statues that are coming to life, reaching up and pulling like weapons out of thin air. Baddies are appearing in every corner. It's totally lifelike and immersive. And then like it'll cut to scenes of just people watching him. He just looks like a crazy person, like fighting himself. And then it'll click back to the game, what he's seeing. And so it's really like fun and like this like whole AR situation. So I was sold hook, line and sinker by both the mystery of this kid on the train and then this crazy ass video game that the kid appears to have been the one who developed. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a really good first episode. Yeah, it does. What's really funny is I still haven't watched this one. And I think it's just because you didn't love, you know, how it ended, Leah. And so I 
kind of put it on the back burner. But like I, I have my own VR headset. Like I have an Oculus. I play VR. I do a VR workout every day. I'm going to do it when we get off the pod. So yeah, maybe you're a target. I feel like I need to watch this. I do. Yeah. And Hyunbin is delicious in it. So, okay. But anyway, now we've talked about some of the good. So what's a drama though, that ultimately did leave you cold? And did you continue with it? And was that a good choice or not? Because we're talking like 12 episodes, usually on the short end, 21 on like the long end, up to an hour and a half an episode. This is a time investment. So I'm curious what happens when you start to feel like this is not going to be your thing. Okay, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. (laughs) And I'm gearing up for like the hate mail or whatever that we're going to get. But for me, it was Descendants of the Sun. I'm wincing (laughs) right now saying this, but I was... I was bored. The best part of the drama for me was the second leads played by Kim Ji-won and Jin-gu. And I loved their character story. But I pretty much fast forwarded through everything else just to get to their scenes. So I'm sorry, Descendants fans. I truly am. I know there are some of you that love this. I stuck with it because Leah and I were buddy watching it. And, you know, early in our K-drama watching months, like that's what we did. Like we watched a drama together. And and I, I do enjoy that camaraderie of watching something together, even if we're not having the same reaction to it. And this is even like one of my favorite writers, Kim Eun-suk. And just overall, it was a miss for me. But I watched the whole thing. Fast forward. Fast forward. <laughs> yeah. I've never done that before. And I never, I've never done it since. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, wait. no. Just, wait, wait, lie, lie. I lie. Run on, <laughs> run on, run on. Sorry. I wouldn't say that this drama left me cold, but it's one that I haven't talked a whole lot about on this podcast. I think I did mention it last episode, but it's Tempted or The Great Seducer. So it p- really pains me because I do love all the actors and actresses, and Wu Do Wan can do no wrong at all okay even in this drama that made his character miserable mopey and weepy for 75 percent of it the writing was just a mess i mean this is supposedly kind of like a take on cruel intentions but it just didn't hit the mark for me i mean all the characters were beyond cruel the central romance had some sort of sweet moments but it was overshadowed by an overload of drama and i was just kind of convinced that everyone Everyone involved needed to go their complete separate ways at the end, like never talk to each other again. And I continued with it for Wudo Wan and Wudo Wan only. And I'm glad I finished because I got to see at least he see him smile like once at the end. But like it was not worth the ride to get there. Truly, it was not. So Amy, first, I'm going to give you a little wag of the finger for fast forwarding dramas because (laughs) like who does that? You might be missing something awesome. What did I miss? What did I miss in Descendants of the Sun? What did I miss in Run On? (laughs) And you know what? I did it another time. I'm sorry. What did I miss in Mr. Queen? (laughs) Okay. So these are all dramas I happened to like. (laughs) I will say that I do take your Descendants criticism as valid overall. I liked it more than you did. I was willing to forgive more than you were. But overall, yes, I would say this is probably uh, my least favorite Kim Eun-suk. Although I do think that Big Boy... (laughs) Song Junki. Yeah, he does it for me. But like, wasn't that his code name, Big Boy? Because it was Big Boy and Wolf, right? I don't remember. I feel. Yeah, you wouldn't know because you were fast forwarding. Because <laughs> so, you know what? Big Boy. Shots fired. He bored me. <laughs> He's yeah, cute. He, Big Boy definitely did not bore me. But like, his storyline, the romance storyline, bored me. The heroine bored me. And I think this is a conversation probably that's too long for this podcast, like talking about this. But he did not bore me. The heroine did bore me. But anyway, I am going to say that for me, a miss was what I just said was a star for me. And that is Memories of the Alhambra. So for me, the setup and the overall concept sold me out of the gate. But overall, when I finished the show, it felt like a drama with a lot of style and little substance. So look, some people love this drama to the moon, the entire thing, including the ending. And I respect that. But for me, the romance and the chemistry felt flat and the core conflict ended up not living up to what I felt like was an amazing premise. I still want to watch it. Yeah, I think I would love to talk about it. After that first episode, yeah, I still want to watch it now. Okay, so I thought something before we kind of went into talking about an episode that, you know, we decided if we wanted to love it or leave it. Um, I thought it'd be also cool to think about like us again as writers. I don't know if we've talked about that too much lately. We are all, you know, published romance writers. I felt like it's only fair to kind of like put us into the ring for this too. And so one thing I thought we could talk about is what's your process personally as a writer when you start a story? 
Is it easy for you to get going or hard? I think it's always a challenge to get that first page, that first chapter going. But I, I always start before I even get to the actual book itself is I always write what we call the back cover blurbs. So like when you pick up a paperback book and you read what's on the back to get like a little sort of, you know, movie trailer version of the book, I write that for the story. And that lets me know if I have a good setup, if I have a good conflict and if I have high enough stakes that there would be some drama going on. And I feel like if I have those three things nailed down, then I can successfully build a story around those elements. So I guess I think the hardest part for me is getting those three things set because that's always what I have the most trouble with in anything that I write is that making sure that my characters have a clear goal and then that they have a clear conflict getting in the way of that goal. My writing process has changed over the years. I would say lately, the first thing I do is I write the blurb like Amy. But I would say the actual writing of the book, starting it is is the easiest for me. Like I actually hate ending books. I'm terrible at it and I draw it out and I don't know how to do it. But I pretty much always have sort of the opening scene in my mind. The way I write my books, especially lately under my pen name, I I get to the like meet cute. I don't know if you call it a meet cute when it's like aliens, <laughs> but whatever. I get to that very quickly. Like that's always kind of my goal is to get to that very quickly. And so I always kind of have that in mind. I know how that's going to happen. And I jot that down just to kind of get a feel for my characters. So once I kind of write down that opening scene, then I go back and I write a more, I wouldn't really say detailed. It's not that detailed, but I, I actually write out a thorough outline. I would say. But I always write that opening scene first. Like I said, I just need to get like a feel for them, like get a feel for their voice and guess what kind of mood I'm in <laughs> when I'm writing that day. So. And like, look, I never write a blurb first, but then as I like wrote that down, I was like, but I've had to, I've had to, when I've like sold things on proposal where you do a blurb and then kind of like a detailed synopsis of what the book's going to look like, because you're trying to like get a deal with a publishing house that they don't have the book. So you have to sell them on the story. But you know, my preference, if like I could wave a magic wand and what I'm doing right now, because I'm writing something not on like not on spec. So I'm just writing it. So I'm doing it the way I want to do it. And that's just to jump in and see what happens, which, you know, it's a mess. It's not uncommon for me to edit my opening the most because I feel like, you know, when I'm allowed to do what I want to do, which is this method, <laughs> I rarely feel like I even know my characters until around 10,000 words. So I feel like I kind of have to like write them into being and then take a pause and be like, ah, okay, kind of like now I know who you are and now I need to go back and like make sure that's clear up front. And so by the time I get to 10,000 words, I feel like I've got a better idea of kind of like goals, motivation and conflict. I mean, it's wildly in a Efficient, but that's my choice if I'm allowed to do it. So does anybody want to talk about a book where you struggled with beginning it and, and why it was the hardest for you to start or a book that was the easiest to start or both? So for me, hands down, the most struggle for me was getting the hero's voice right in the Off the Map trilogy, which also happened to be my first published story series. I felt like the heroine's voice came to me right away. The first chapter came to me right away, but the hero brand, nothing. And I really didn't find it until the very end of book one of Upside Down, which is the first book in the series. And I feel like that's fairly obvious now if you go back and look at that book, because I had to go back and redo most of Bran's chapters. And really, there just aren't many of them. But then by the end, when I felt like his voice like actually came to me, books two and three, because it's a trilogy, I felt like his voice like took over the story. Because once I got it, I really, I preferred writing as him and I had a hard time writing anything else. And then for me, the easiest opener, you know how Megan says normally she's got like the idea of like what she wants to do first in her head right away. I kind of change mine a lot. But for me, one that stands out as it was an easy opener for me was Best Worst Mistake, which was in my Brightwater trilogy. I have a hero who's a smoke jumper. And for whatever reason, his voice came to me fine right out of the gate. And this is an opening like I just didn't edit. Somehow I just knew I wanted him to land in a fire and be in some serious shit. And he was going to save a baby fawn and get seriously injured doing it because I wanted it to be this Beauty and the Beast retelling. And I felt like, yeah, I was at this point where I was just drafting books at that point, like back to back to back. And for whatever reason, the idea of like this like baby fawn, I feel like you might remember this with me at that point because we were making yes. like charred baby fawn yes. jokes. <laughs> yes. I was totally entertained by this idea because I'm a sick puppy I guess and uh yeah and it was fun to me in that frame of mind <laughs> I 100% remember you're like guys he's gonna rescue a baby fawn <laughs> and no no fawns were injured in the writing of that book right yeah. no fawns no fawns he yes. was injured very badly <laughs> saving the baby fawn <laughs> I just oh my god I do remember you talking about that it was so who funny. then moved on to have a screen career in um it's okay to not be okay <laughs> screaming in South Korean films <laughs> 
<laughs> and in Train to Busan. Train to Busan was reanimated. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So, you know, what are some elements though that always grab you in a book or drama right away when you're not the creator, but you're the consumer? I'm a big fan of an opening scene that starts right in the middle of the action and that maybe makes me a little bit confused, like just enough to wonder what I just walked into and what's going to happen next. And I think all of the sort of first scenes that really grabbed us that we all brought up today, I think they all did that. Like Memories of the Alhambra sounds like it does that. I'm Not a Robot does that. And Lawless Lawyer does that. Like you're right in the action and you have no idea what's going on. And I love that. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I I try to do that in my books, kind of, I like to just get right in there. Like they're just in the thick of it, you know, into the thick of it. Sorry. (laughs) Fell on TikTok too much. (laughs) So like, basically don't give me a character that's like waking up and looking in a mirror, you know, it's like the standard, you know, the agents would always say and editors like, do not send us a book where the character wakes up, looks in the mirror and describes, oh, you know, I fingered my dark brown hair or whatever. Um, Yeah. So I want mid convo, mid action. Let's go. And yeah, I agree with both of those points, but I think the thing that hooks me both like reading and so like reading wise, I think it's voice, but um, also I would say that character vibe, if I was like watching like a K-drama, let's say. So I don't mind a bit of a slower start if the voice or the character seems like my people right away. And I think that's probably why like lately I've just been like loving these like well done slice of life dramas. And yeah, overall K-dramas, I've decided that they don't bother me in the least as long as I'm really happy to hang out and spend time with the main characters. I think that's totally true. I I know what you mean by like the vibe. Like I can tell right away if that's someone that like I would get along with. Um, And actually the drama I'm going to talk about later. It's like I could tell right away. I'm like that heroine. I would be friends with her. Yeah, same, same. All right. Well, now it is time for our, uh, you know, favorite part of every show, which is our wreck of the week. And today we have our K-pop recommendation with Megan. So today I am recommending Bad Alive English version by wavy and that's w-a-y-v so wavy is technically a chinese group but they are kind of an offshoot of nct which is a k-pop group company all that so they promote in korea they're on the korean shows some of their songs are they sing in chinese but they are amazing they're seven guys they have incredible incredible chemistry and i'm telling you right it's funny why i'm recommending bad alive because it's not like new or anything but i was in the car and it came up on my personal playlist and i was like this song just bangs like it is it's just so fun to listen to it's so good do the english words make a lot of sense no did they talk about their thousand dollar shoes yes but it doesn't matter because it's amazing. The main reason you also want to listen to it is you have to watch the video. The music video is something to behold. I will tell you right now, just the opening shots of the visual masterpiece that is Lucas in black and red is just incredible. So you just got to listen to it, okay? Trust me. I've had some feedback that you guys are enjoying the Spotify playlist I made. I'm really happy. Thank you. And just trust me, you got to you gotta listen to Bad Alive by Wavy. You'll love it. I'm going to second that because I watched this video very recently and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, it's (laughs) extremely sexy. (laughs) And while we're giving you all recommendations, how about if we put in a little plug for ourselves? If you are enjoying our podcast, which we hope you are because you're here listening to us, please drop into Apple Podcasts and leave us a star rating or a review or both. We would love both. That helps our little baby pod grow even bigger and get more listeners. And we also love interacting with our listeners. You can always email us about anything that you saw on the show at afternoonadelightpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at afternoonadelightpodcast. And we are on Twitter too, but we interact a lot more on Instagram. So I think you should follow us there. Um, But we're all over social media. You can find us on Facebook as well. But yeah, we, we do a lot of fun polls and stuff in our Instagram stories. And we interact with our listeners all the time. And we want to hear from you. And we want to know what you want to see on the pod. We want to know what you're loving on the pod. Pod, and we just we want to hang out with y'all. So afternoon of delight podcast at gmail.com if you want to send us a message and afternoon of delight podcast on Instagram. And so now we're going to get into the love it or leave it part of the episode. So this is where we each watched episode one of a K drama. And we're going to tell you a little bit about it, what we thought, did it hook us, did it not? And are we going to keep going? And first up, we have Leah. 
All right. So I did reply in 1997 and I know I'm getting lots of heat because I cannot get my reply years down. And I've decided, you know what, like they might as well do like a Josen one and do like, you know, <laughs> reply 2030, you know, 1832 or something. But anyway, this is reply 1997. And I won't forget this because I graduated high school in 1997. This is the year Lady Diana died in a car crash in Paris. A popular catchphrase at the time was, oh my God, they killed Kenny on South Park. Titanic won 11 Oscars and Beanie Babies were the must toy for Christmas 1997. So were Pokemon and Tamagotchi. Musical hits were Hanson's Mbop, Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, and Elton John's Candle in the Wind homage to Lady Diana, as well as Spice Girls' Wannabe. So look, that's part of the reason I chose this drama. The other reason is that I am mildly obsessed with the screenwriter Lee Woojung, who has also done Hospital Playlist and Prison Playbook. This was the first of the popular reply series, which includes 1994, which I liked, although many did not. And then 1988, which I have not seen yet, but seems very beloved. And I think, you know, we're going to probably do it the pod at this at some point. So this drama opens with a bit of, of a surprise for me because the parents from 1994 are also the main parents here in 1997. 1997 actually is like the first of the dramas though. And I kind of gathered this was going to be the case because when watching Reply 1994, there's this kind of like funny, weird part where the characters from 94 and 97 interact as like long lost family members that like vaguely resemble each other because they're literally the same people. And Amy, since you're watching Hospital Playlist, it's also the older brother priest character who's really fun to watch. But anyway, it kind of was like a bit of a mind boggle to like have it be the same parent. Okay, he's in 88 too. Yes. It's all the same people then. Yeah, so I had to take a minute to be like, okay, these are new characters. This is a new story. Like, take a second. Because it definitely, like, took me out of the show right out of the gate. So the drama follows a female high school student, Shiwan, played by Jung Eun Ji, who idolizes a boy band, H.O.T., and then it's also her five high school friends. The romantic lead in this, presumably I'm assuming because he's hot as shit, is also the lead in um, Doom at Your Service, Amy, and that's the smoldering Seo In-guk. So anyway, the opening scene is actually in 2012. We see Shiwan in a karaoke club with her parents. The dad is very into like 70s classics and wants her to put on an old song and like none of that English shit, basically. Like he wants a Korean song. And she gets this mischievous grin on her face and selects a song from the boy band H.O.T., which the dad moans isn't an old classic rock at all. But she says, look, it's pretty old because it's 15 years old. And when you kind of do the math on that, you're like, oh, yeah, fair. You know, given when this drama came out. Okay, so there's a lot of family bickering in the karaoke. And then we flash forward to Shiwan. I'm assuming it's a few days later and she's in a cab and she's kind of like through the narration revealing that she's a struggling screenwriter. She's 33 and she's heading off to her high school reunion. So we're not even at the 90s yet. But this back and forth timeline concept was a huge part of Reply 1994. And I'm assuming it's going to be like a conceit in Reply 1998 of like we go from the past to the kind of like near present of, you know, whatever, like they're adults. So Shiwan says she doesn't hate her job as a screenwriter, but it's kind of annoying because most of her writing consists of labeling props for the show she's on. So she's clearly hasn't crushed it in her career yet. But even though she gets down a bit in her present life, she feels like she can always cheer herself up by rocking out to some sick 90s beats. So that's fun. She enters the reunion and all the girlfriends greet each other with uplifting and supportive comments like, hey, you gained weight, you got plastic surgery, and what did you do with your hair? Yuck. So I'm really never a fan of anybody or beauty shaming and all that like banter falls flat on me. But there's like charming parts too. Like the heroine has a bestie whose nickname is Shipsuppa, which means she easily falls in love. Thank you again to Vicky Translators for making all the fun jokes come to life. And Shipsapa is like a huge fangirl who changes her favorites often from Kim Soo-yeon to pop stars who are 12 years younger than her. So again, all very relatable. <laughs> then we have this like slow-mo entrance to the four main guys and smoldering Seo In-guk is just really sexy as can be, except he comes in and then asks the heroine if she's gained some weight, which again, just like why 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 but then we find out quickly that they're all in these matching black suits because they're coming from one of their teachers funerals that's when we find out that there's a big mystery one of the couples at this reunion is going to announce their marriage but who could it be 
So look, it's got a similar setup to Reply 1994, where it starts with a heroine hosting a housewarming party where the crew is rewatching her recently discovered wedding video. And through a series of clever and also supremely annoying plot choices, it keeps the identity of the lead couple a secret until the final episode. So I'm assuming that's going to be the same thing for this show. Then we have a cue to return to 1997, where we see all of those characters from the reunion as 90s teens on the couch. And the lead is fumbling to record her favorite boy band that band H.O.T. on the VHS. So I felt like this was a very relatable stress of like trying to like queue up your TV to press record to get something you really wanted to watch if you were a 90s kid. Crushes are quickly revealed and it feels like it's setting itself up to be this fun ensemble that's going to let me relive my own pivotal late teens. So besides like the unnecessary like body shaming, the overall vibe is fun and nostalgic. And I saw one reviewer, Girl Friday, on the site Drama Beans describe it as a cross between freaks and geeks and my so-called life, which honestly are the only two comps I need. So for me, it's love it. I am in the middle of a few other dramas, so I'm not intrigued enough to stop everything and inhale this, but I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be getting a quality, heartwarming drama populated by realistic characters who are going to feel like friends, and I'm excited to return to it soon. That sounds awesome. And those comps like Freaks and Geeks and My So-Called Life, like that just sold me. Absolutely. So one thing that I want to point out that's really funny. So the the name of the actor, Sung Dong Il, he's the one who is the older priest brother in Hospital Playlist and who is obviously plays one of the parents in all of the Reply series because like I said, he was in 1988. He's in 94 and 97. He is the villain in Legend of the Blue Sea. So He's the villain in that. And so I remember when I started Hospital Playlist, because I I watched the first couple episodes of Reply 1988 before switching to Hospital Playlist. So I was watching Reply 1988. I'm like, why do I know this guy? Like, and it was weird to me that he was like just this normal guy and like smiling because like something wasn't clicking right. And so I had to like look him up and he's the villain in, like I said, in uh, Legend of the Blue Sea. Is he a funny villain or like a... No. Like, so Legend of the Blue Sea which I'm sure we'll talk about later. We're doing, we're doing late Yeah, fall. so Legend of the Blue Sea is the mermaid drama with Jun Ji-hun and Lee Min-ho, and Song Dong-il plays the villain. And it takes place in the past, in what looks like possibly like the Joseon era, and then also in the present. And so he is the villain in the Joseon era, but then also the reincarnated villain in present day. And in present day, he's like this creepy serial killer. Wow, because he's so, yes. I mean, he's like the beating heart of Reply no, 94. He's, I mean, he was really good. He was a good villain. So I will just throw that out there. And because I realized that he's in all of the Reply stuff and in Hospital Playlist. Only a very little yeah, bit. Clearly yeah, clearly he's like one of those like muses. Yeah. And I really like when you see like a writer and then like you start to see that like, you know, they've got like a cast that kind of follows totally. them through different dramas. Like Yu Yeon-sik from Reply 94 being in Hospital Playlist. Like I just really enjoy getting to see yeah. that. No, it's it's super fun. So I'm excited for you guys to see him as a villain. Um, well, Megan hasn't seen him in it, as anything yet. So I'm excited for you to just see him. So I'll get on to mine now. So my love it or leave it, I watched the first episode of Doom at Your Service. So first of all, according to Asian Wiki, the actual literal translation of the Korean title for this drama is one day, Doom entered the front door of my house. (laughs) And guess what? That is exactly what happens in one of the scenes in episode one of Doom at Your Service. So that is a very good literal translation because that happens. So first I'm going to give a little short and sweet blurb of the drama and then I'll get into it. So this is the blurb from Drama Beans. A terminally ill woman finds herself at the breaking point and wishes for the end of the world. In answer, a mysterious man who acts as a messenger of doom between God and humans appears at her door. The two must live together for 100 days. Sounds interesting enough. So why? Why must they live together? I don't know by the end of episode one. Not quite sure, but that's the deal. So here's a little overview of just the first scene, and then I'll get into sort of everything else that happens in episode one and my take on it. So here we go. And, and tell you why I did put this drama kind of on the back burner for now. It doesn't mean that I didn't love it, though. So Tak Dong Kyung, played by Park Bo Young, is an editor for a publisher. In the very first scene, she's being told by a doctor that she has lesions on her brain. He tells her that she needs to be admitted for a week to biopsy the lesions and figure out treatment. And she basically says that she can't manage to take a week off of work, so she's not going to do it. He tells her if she doesn't have the surgery, she'll die sooner and experience much pain. But basically, she's going to die. So she thanks him for seeing her and then talks to him about his book because she is his editor. And as a favor, he had squeezed her in for an MRI to see what's going on in her brain because she's having some headaches and stuff like that. So that's the opening scene. And from here, shit keeps getting worse. 
She finds out that her boyfriend is actually a married man with a pregnant wife, who in the next scene is confronting Dong Kyung in a coffee shop where she's throwing a glass of water in her face, as happens in K-dramas. After that, she goes to work where her boss gives her hell for being late. Because, of course, he has no clue she was just getting the results of an MRI that says she's going to die. And then we find out that her encounter with her boyfriend's baby mama, wife, that she had um, at the cafe was captured on video and is now trending online. After this, a guy on the subway recognizes her as the person from the viral video and starts filming her without consent as she's reading the hateful comments on the viral video because everybody you know, sees her as the other woman who's breaking up a marriage. Then her brother calls and asks her for money. And guess what? It's also the day that is the anniversary of their parents' death. Then her aunt calls to make sure that she bought a cake to celebrate her parents. Of course, on this momentous day, she does not tell her aunt about her diagnosis. Instead, she drinks a lot, wishes doom upon the world, and then surprise, Miel Mang, aka Doom, played by the dreamy Seo Inguk, shows up at her door offering to make her wish come true if she makes a deal with him. Some other stuff happens to convince her that he's for real and not a brain tumor-induced hallucination, but that's basically the first episode in a nutshell. So look, Park Bo Young is charming and Seo Inguk is dreamy as hell. But I tortured myself through a 20-episode drama where Kim Woo Bin played a K-drama actor with a brain tumor who was suffering alone to spare everyone else the grief and likely to spare himself the reality of what was happening to him. That drama wrecked me something good, and I've talked about it a lot. And it's not a spoiler to say that he has a brain tumor because you find out in episode one, just like in Doom at Your Service, and this is uncontrollably fond that I'm talking about since I haven't said it yet. And to be honest, I've had my own recent health scares in the past year, and this all just hit too close for home for me, barring the fantasy element as I have not met God's messenger of doom yet, as far as I know. The episode was entertaining, and it definitely hooked me. And I do want to see how this drama plays out, but I am not in the headspace for it right now to continue, so I will probably go back to it eventually but not quite yet. So was any of this humorous at all? Like, was there a lightness to it? Yes, there's definitely some levity to it. So it's not, I mean, like, but how much bad shit can happen to one person after she finds out, after she finds out she's dying, then everything else just keeps happening. And I was like, dude, like, this is a little much. But yes, there's absolutely humor. There's absolutely some lightness, you know, with the dark. Unlike Uncontrollably Fond, which was a realistic drama, you know, everybody was human. In Doom at Your Service, I'm guessing that we have a better chance of a possible sort of happy ending since there is a fantasy element to it. But right now, I just don't want to watch somebody dying for the entirety of a drama. (laughs) Yeah, that's understandable. Okay, so I have heard great things about my roommate is a Gumio, so I decided to give it a try and watch the first episode. So first, let me say that the hero, Shin Woo Yeo, played by Jang Ki Yong, is a presence on screen. He's very tall, incredibly good looking, and honestly seems like royalty. He could be Lee Gon's son, okay? <laughs> and he's also a Gumio. So we learn right away through a series of montages beginning in the Joseon Dynasty that he very much wants to be a human. And in order to do that, he first must live long enough to gain all nine of his tails. And then he must attain enough human energy to turn his red fox bead blue. So I'll say I'm slightly unsure of the fox bead details. Ah, more fox bead. Yes. <laughs> but it I already know. sounds like there's more explanation in this. Like I right. even mentioned like the nine tails. Like Lego never right. had to do anything fox-like ever. <laughs> so they show him basically going in to kiss a lot of women like over the decades. Okay. But and the fox bead just kind of hovers between their lips, sort of. And I think that's how he gathers their energy, sort of. And it's not, I don't think it harms them. It just is like, I, I don't quite get it. Okay. I think I need to do some more Gumio research, but I'll tell you, to be honest, I didn't need to understand all the lore to like figure out what was going on. Like it wasn't necessary. It gave me enough explanation for me to be excited. Anyway, the dude is growing tired of his long shelf life. So he mostly keeps to himself and he has pretty terrible social skills. And one thing he does have is a damn nice red sports car. So one night the heroine, who is Lee Dam, played by 
Hayeri, who is gorgeous. She's walking home with her drunk friend who passes out on Wu Yeo's car, which is like parked on the street and Wu Yeo is standing nearby. So of course, Sam is trying to get her friend off the car on his two feet and she falls and Wu Yeo does a very amazing, you know, K-drama like grab of the arm to catch her. And she kind of pushes on his chest, like kind of the momentum kind of has her like slamming her hands on his chest. And when that happens, the fox bead falls out of his mouth into hers, just goes right in there. She swallows it. Then she passes out. And when she wakes up, she's in his home and he informs her that she has his bead. And until he figures out how to get it back, she has to stay with him. And she, of course, assumes he's completely crazy. Like she thinks he's going to like steal an organ or something. And then he's like, I'll have to prove it to you. And he shifts into a fox. Yes, we actually got a full fox Gumio shift. He's huge and white and incredibly CG, but it doesn't matter. It's it's pretty glorious, okay? It really is. I like it a lot. And so that's where the con- conflict starts. So, folks, this is a forced proximity trope, which is one of my favorites. And so here's why. So she's got this fox beat in her, right? And the tiger, just follow me on this, okay? <laughs> so the tiger is the fox's natural enemy. So therefore, if any man who is born in the year of the tiger touches her, she like doubles over in pain, like lots of pain, worse than period cramps, she says. So ouch. And what can cure her pain? You guessed it. Gorgeous, beautiful, Gumio Wuyeo. When he touches her, the pain goes away immediately. So the obvious solution is to move her in with him in his big, beautiful mansion. You know Why? Why the hell not? So it's a good conflict, right? Like she's in pain. He cures the pain. Cool. And then we find out at the very end of the first episode that she can only have the fox beat in her for one year. And she's, you know, she's all cool, cool. You know, after a year, this will all be resolved and we can go our separate ways. And he's like, uh, no, 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 ma'am. If I can't get the fox beat out of you within a year, you die. Dun, dun, dun. And that's the very end of the first episode which I think is a great cliffhanger. So I'm into it. Like, I love a good forced proximity trope. The main leads already have some fabulous chemistry. I mean, he touches her face with his, like, huge hands, and I'm just melting. I mean, his hands are huge, guys. His motivations aren't fully realized yet. We're getting there. But he's clearly, like, a good Gumio who doesn't, like, eat livers. And look, he just wants to be human. You know, him and Lee Yoon from... Uh... Tail the Nine Tail could hang out. And he's very, very sweet to her, which is a total change because he's very, very cold to everyone else. Like, I mean, straight up, like he'll just walk away from you like mid conversation. So the heroine's goal at this point is to stay alive. <laughs> so I'm eager to see, you know, what else she has going on. Like, I always love I, I would like a heroine's goal that's like separate from the romance. You know what I'm saying? We did meet her brother already and they have a really cool relationship. And they also have this family motto that is basically take care of your own life. Like they have signs on the wall of their home saying that they they mentioned it like twice in the first episode. So I feel like there's going to be more on that. I don't know, but I'm excited. So to be honest, as soon as I was done episode one, I wanted to watch episode two immediately. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. And I think I'm going to like dive right into this one. That sounds really good. Yeah, I mean, it was a very clear conflict. It's, it's very clear that they need to they need to be together. I love the idea that like if the, a man born in the year of the tiger touches her, only his touch can relieve the pain. I'm a sucker for that type of thing. Like I love it. And then I like the idea that there's, you know, a ticking clock. Like we always say when we're writing, you need something to drive the plot forward, like give a ticking clock, give a timeline that like something has to happen by this time or this consequence happens. So I guess we'll see. And but seriously, they're a very sexy couple. Like they're both incredibly good looking. Yeah, I'm sold. Yeah, sounds great. I, I think you guys would like it. So I think I'm going to go ahead and watch it because I think it's finished now. Like I think it just finished and I keep hearing good things. So so book rec time. What is a book that hooked you from page one? Okay, well, why don't we um, change it up? Lately, we've just been doing one book. But, you know, I feel like this is a fun, a fun question. So let's all do one for this. So for me, a book that gripped me most right out of the gate uh, recently was one called The Night Tiger by Yangtze Chu. So it's a historical fiction slash magical realism book set in 1930s Malaysia with some like trips to Singapore. And I'll just read you the blurb really quickly because I think it kind of like sums up some of the fun of the, the book. So quick-witted, ambitious Jilin is stuck as an apprentice dressmaker moonlighting as a dance hall girl to help pay off her mother's mahjong debt. But when one of her dance partners accidentally leaves behind a gruesome souvenir, 
Jilin plunges into a dark adventure, a mirror world of secrets and superstitions. 11-year-old houseboy Ren is also on a mission. He's racing to fulfill his former master's dying wish that Ren find the man's finger lost years ago in an accident and to bury it with his body. Ren has 49 days to do so or his master's soul will wander the earth forever. As the days click relentlessly by, a series of unexplained deaths racks the district along with whispers of men who turn into tigers. Ji Lin and Ren's increasingly dangerous paths crisscross through lush plantations, hospital storage rooms, and ghostly dreamscapes. So for me, I love this book. I love the romance, which you don't really get a big sense of the romance in the blurb, but there's a really strong, I'd say the romance is the B story, but it's a very strong B story. I loved the world building and really, I just love the whole damn thing. But right out of the gate, we've got this little boy, his master's dying and the master's like, you gotta find my finger. <laughs> it, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna second that it's a really good book because Leah recommended it to me and I, I read it too. I, there's nothing to compare it to. Like it's just it's its own thing, and it's very cool and and different. And agree that the romance was something that I wasn't expecting, and was very pleasantly surprised to get. And I can do mine. I believe that I mentioned this book back when we were watching Healer because Healer gave me these kind of vibes. And it's called On the Jellicoe Road or Jellicoe Road, depending on which country you're in, because it's an Australian author, Melina Marchetta. And for me. This is a book where the first line drew me in, and it here's the first line of the book. My father took 132 minutes to die. That's line one. And that gives you no clue what the book is about. It is one of these books, like the reason why I likened it to Healer is that it, you've got the present generation kind of unraveling the mystery of the past and sort of fixing what happened in the past generation. And so I'll read you the blurb of the book, but it still won't give you any real clue what this book is. But I think when I'm done talking about it, Leah can second that it's a book that everybody should probably read. And it's considered a teen book, but I think this book is for everybody. So Jellicoe Road is a dazzling tale that is part love story, part family drama, and part coming-of-age novel. Abandoned by her mother on Jellicoe Road when she was 11, Taylor Markham, now 17, is finally being confronted with her past. But as the reluctant leader of her boarding school dorm, there isn't a lot of time for introspection. And while Hannah, the closest adult Taylor has to family, has disappeared, Jonah Griggs, the boy who might be the key to unlocking the secrets of Taylor's past, is back in town, moody stares and all. In this absorbing story by Melina Marchetta, nothing is as it seems, and every clue leads to more questions as Taylor tries to work out the connection between her mother dumping her, Hannah finding her, Hannah's sudden departure, a mysterious stranger who once whispered something in her ear, a boy in her dreams, five kids who lived on Jellicoe Road 18 years ago, and the maddening and magnetic Jonah Griggs, who knows her better than she thinks he does. If Taylor can put together the pieces of her past, she might just be able to change her future. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and I tell everybody to read it whenever I can. And Amy told me to read it, and I loved it. I did the audio it's version. It's so good. It's and so good. My husband liked it. Like, we listened to it together. Yeah. Aww. It's fantastic. And we never listened to books together. Yeah. I mean, it was set in Australia, so it was also nostalgic for him. But, I mean, it's just wonderful. And it is one of those books that you can't really talk about. Like, when I was when I was an English teacher in the classroom and I had a classroom library, I handed this book to one of my students because we had independent reading time in class. And I handed it to her and I said, I think you're going to love this. I can't really tell you anything about it. Just read it. And if you agree with me, pass it on to someone else. And she came back to me like two days later and was like, oh my God, you know, Miss Pine, that's like one of the best things I've ever read. And passed, and the book just kind of traveled around my classroom and it was the best thing. Oh, I love that. I know. That's so great. It's the best feeling. So I'm going to talk about Heroin Complex by Sarah Kuhn. So I'm going to read the blurb and then I'm going to tell you why the first chapter is just so, so good. So being a superheroine is hard. Working for one is even harder. Eva Tanaka is the put upon personal assistant to Aveda Jupiter, her childhood best friend and San Francisco's most beloved superheroine. She's great at her job, blending into the background, handling her boss's epic diva tantrums and getting demon blood out of leather pants. Unfortunately, she's not nearly as together when it comes to running her own life, standing up for herself or raising her tempestuous teenage sister, B. But everything changes when Evie's forced to pose as her glamorous boss for one night and her darkest secret comes out she has powers too. Now it's up to her to contend with murderous cupcakes, nosy gossip bloggers, and supernatural karaoke battles, all while juggling unexpected romance and Aveda's increasingly outrageous demands. And when a larger threat emerges, Evie must finally take charge and become a superheroine in her own right, or see her city fall to a full-on demonic invasion. 
So the first chapter is really fun. So it opens up. And so she, again, she's the assistant to a superheroine. Okay. And it's very funny because it's very modern feeling as in a superheroine just wants like a really good footage for her social media when she's like battling these demon cupcakes in a bakery. So they're like dodging this like, <laughs> these like demon cupcake, evil frost. It's just very funny. And she's trying to get all this footage and it uploads and then someone in the comments is like oh but what happened to aveda's face and she has like a zit and she like loses it and then you know the assistant has to like deal with the fact that her like boss is like how did you not see my zit and it's just it's very funny the vocabulary is great the dialogue is fun it's just a really cool book but i think it just has a fantastic opening chapter because it just sucks you in right away and the voice of the heroine is fantastic so anyway, that's Heroine Complex by Sarah Kuhn. That sounds super fun. Yeah. And look at the so look at the cover. Re- listeners can't see it, but it's very cool. See, she's like kicking a cupcake. I love just, it. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it sounds really fun. So what are we watching? I'm the slowpoke these past couple of weeks, and I'm still making my way catching up to Hospital Playlist Season 2. Because these, these episodes are a commitment, but I'm here for it. I love this show so much. And hopefully by next pod, I will be caught up in only watching one Hospital Playlist a week so that I can then start another drama. I am catching up on a show that both of you have already seen, and that is Lawless Lawyer, which is about to come out on Netflix if it hasn't already by the time this airs. And that's going to be one of our next pods. So I got to get on it. And you're going to love it. Well, I hope you are. It's, I think so. it's It's good. I love Lee Jun Gi. So yeah. And he's, it's his drama for like full on. It's, it's Bong Sang Pil's drama. Bong Sang Pile. That's what they say. They're all the whole thing. Anyway. So I didn't want to watch any more of my roommate is a Gumio because I wanted to only watch episode one when we talked about that. You know what I mean? Because that was like the assignment. So now I'm going to um, watch the rest of it because I'm like, I'm already like super into it. The hero is really intriguing. I want to know more about him. Heroine. Uh, we talked about like the vibes, like she would totally be my friend. Like she's the type of friend who's going to carry your drunk ass home on her back. She will do it. Kind of like Unchan. <laughs> and what's up next? So this is going to be a fun one. Yeah. So we're going to basically just ship our favorite couples and friends like across dramas, cast them in other roles. And it's going to be just a wild ride. And I can't wait to do it. All right. It's bedtime. It's bedtime where we are, everybody. So thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Afternoon Delight. Make sure to subscribe for more great K-Romance conversation. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoon Delight Podcast for more information on our podcast, behind-the-scenes photos, and, of course, pics of our favorite opas and unis. Annyeong! Annyeong!